off the ball. The second biggest cheer was Ronaldo warmed up. The biggest cheer was Ronaldo came on the pitch. There is still this fixation of Ronaldo is coming onto the pitch and he buys into Subscribe that. now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Papers coming at you. So let me run you through the back pages. Two guesses. Start with the Sunday Mirror. It's that picture of Harry Kane where he's biting his jersey. Over and out is the headline. Three lines heartbreak after Kane penalty miss. Then we have the Sunday World. Exactly the same picture. Kane just lifting his jersey half over his face, biting down on it. And the headline is hero to zero, says the Sunday World. But Roy Keane jumps to Kane's defence after he blasted a penalty over the bar. And then also on the Sunday World, alongside that picture of Harry Kane, they have Poole to pile in for Jude. So Liverpool are willing to break their transfer record and spend 100 million sterling on Jude Bellingham is the Sunday World. We have the Sun. So they have two pictures, really. They have Kane again just biting his jersey and looking in disbelief. And we have Giroud turning away to celebrate over in brackets, they have the bar and out. Over and out, says the sun. Sky Kane penalty ends England's World Cup. And uh, believe in miracles, as in Morocco. They have a picture of Ronaldo on his knees, hands on his face, and then Moroccan players celebrating after their win. Yesterday has been an extraordinary few days in the World Cup, you have to say. Sunday Times, Kane's pain. This time it's Kane walking away, hands on the back of his head this time. England won, France too. Alongside that, O'Neill airs national anthem concerns. Quite interesting, this Paul Rowan with Michael O'Neill, once again, Northern Ireland manager, and he's talking about God Save the Queen and how it does hamper team unity, but he doesn't think it'll be changed. So he's saying, we were a little bit disadvantaged at times just for that brief moment before a game when you're singing against a nation. And he referenced how you see players getting fired up at the World Cup even these past couple of months. He said uh, his request of the nationalist players was not to bow their heads and for everybody to link up and to uh, respect each other. He said, I felt it was important for those players to respect the lads in the squad who did regard God Save the Queen as their national anthem. And so not to have body language, which would appear disrespectful as well. So it's quite healthy. They're talking about it even as opposed to it being the elephant in the room. That's the Sunday Times front page. There is an interview with Michael O'Neill inside with Paul Rome. Sunday Independent then. Harry's pain. Harry Kane, eyes closed, looking up to the sky. World Cup heartbreak. Kane penalty sends England home. And then we have the mail on Sunday again. That picture of Kane grimacing, half smiling in disbelief, biting his jersey. Harry's heartbreak. And then the picture of Mbappe. Uh, celebrating the penalty miss with uh, plenty of joy as well. Beneath that relentless Leinster get off to a flyer in France and Ronaldo out in tears as Morocco make history. Very happy to say John Green, Sunday Independent Sports Editor here in studio. Brendan O'Brien of the Irish Examiner with us as well. Gents, you're very welcome. Great to have you with us. Harry's pain all over the back pages. So where do you want to jump in here? It's Listen, been an extraordinary couple of days. Listening to you at the start there because we had not a lengthy because we didn't have time with our deadlines last night. Yeah. About what picture to use and a lot of the ones have the the jersey over the uh, yeah. And um, we, we I spent longer than I normally would you know looking for the right picture to put on the front page. Yeah. And they were there was a lot of the, those pictures of him with that jersey and I just couldn't see any pain in his face. And there's not a whole lot of pain in the picture of, that we used as well. There's a little bit more, but I, I, in one of the pieces that I read this morning, they're talking about um, he, he's normally very inscrutable. And yes. even last night, he, he kind of maintained that front. That's got to be one of the fun parts of the job. Send in all the photos. I get to pick the front cover. Yeah, well, I don't get to pick it. I mean, I have a boss, too, who, who has strong opinions. But, uh, yeah, we, we did have a good chat under the, you know, tightness of a very tight deadline and I mean you look at I was actually thinking about this the the selection of articles across the papers today there's some really fantastic writing there is uh, from from the journalists uh, we've we've a Sam Wallace piece from the Telegraph uh, and I, I checked this morning he we got that at 25 past nine so I don't know what time the game finished at about five past nine ten yeah. past nine and Dan McDonald has a, a, did his match report and he filed it around the same time 
Um, Sunday Times, they have a slightly later deadline, but they're still writing under severe pressure. And there's some excellent pieces from David Walsh, Jonathan Norcroft. I mean, the quality of the of the reaction to the to, to what was a a proper game of football, I think, and very much in the balance. They were going to have to shape the piece accordingly. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I, I have to say, I thought as a comment piece and a capturing the moment I thought Sam Wallace was the best of the bunch actually so you have him here in the Sunday Independent he's in the Telegraph as well and I th- he jumped to the, the thing which has been on my mind a little bit where he talked about how Kane and Lloris will have faced each other so many times over the last number of years he says in the peace and privacy of Tottenham Hotspur's training hub accompanied only by the dits- distant buzz of the M25 and here they were anew in the winter desert in front of the world I did think to myself as well I don't know will Harry Kane ever stomach taking a penalty against Lloris in training again because yeah. if you score how hollow will that feel and you miss I mean it just triggers your PTSD all over again I, I don't think you'll ever want to see Lloris in training point. again It's a good point and there's, there's an element of double bluff any time you take a second penalty in yeah. a game with, against the same keeper I mean it's all about mind games at the best of times so what must Harry Kane have been thinking when he stepped up for that second penalty do you stick it in the same side he went for the same side which the vast majority of his penalties for England have been aimed at the, to his left. Um, but there's bluff and double bluff for one penalty. What does that become for a second penalty? Treble bluff, quadruple bluff. Yeah. Um, it's just, an, you'd love to know, will he ever speak about it? Will he ever go on record? It might take 10 years yeah. from to actually sit down with a journalist and actually tell us what we're thinking about it. But, but then again, if he strikes the second penalty as well as he struck the first one, it's not going to be saved. Uh-huh. But that's no matter, the thing, you know, you know, and is that like a two percent doubt in his mind? What is it about his technique that changed? Because he he did go for the same side. He he clearly tried to get it a little bit higher, and he just did the Chris Waddle on it. And there's some great descriptions on the penalty itself. Barney Roney and the, and the Guardian again is just. I think he's literally out of this world, and he's talking about this penalty hitting the stratosphere, and just the language he uses. And you've talked about John at that time of night with deadlines and everything else it's extraordinary writing it's, it's really extraordinary and, and it's, it's freely available online for anybody who wants to see but I think it's it's interesting as well because because these guys are writing on the whistle Yeah. this is a moment in time captured this is what people are, are thinking at that time and what we read in the papers and what we see the pundits say after the game will crystallise and that will be history as we remember it hmm. you know it's like your first impression always lasts and it's very interesting looking through the papers today how different writers have crystallised the moment. And Sam Wallace, I'm just looking through it again, it's an excellent report and he's kind of talking about, um, you know, this England worked and the change has been in a thousand different ways. Um, but just one moment kind of changed it. And, and Ollie Holt in the, in the mail, I thought, really grabbed my yeah. eye. There's a line about four powers down. He says, the truth is England have become experts in finding ways to lose in critical moments of big matches. And they found another variation in that team here. And and this kind of, you know, maybe England are being let off the hook by other writers in a little way. Whereas Ollie Holt is saying, this is all on us, and ag- on us again. And it's interesting as well, on the far side of that spread, they have the expert view by Mark Clattenburg, the referee expert, yeah. where he basically says the ref recovered right. calls. Yeah. And yeah. this will eat into the whole we was robbed kind of thing as well, you know. So in in that moment, just across today's papers, it's a fascinating snapshot as to how different people saw it. I thought what was so good about Sam Wallace is that he, again, under time pressure, captures the nuance of this defeat. For me, there's a different England defeat to previous defeats. And he manages to hone in on that very, very well. So he says, uh, of Kane, he finishes off in Kane. Kane, outstanding, might have been England's best player in the night after perhaps uh, Bukayo Saka. But he does say that this was a World Cup quarterfinal of a grand scale. There have been those in the past when England have been playing a different game to the World Cup elite, chasing shadows in a sport which they seem unfamiliar, gulping lungs of panic breaths, watching Mesut Ozil disappear into the mid-distance. This time it was different. They were competing with uh, the best as equals, or at least as close to equals as you can be when one side loses. Uh, This team will not be remembered like the others. They had a plan and a style, and in the end it does come down to moments, but it just makes it harder to comprehend when those moments feel so much at odds with what has happened before. Old England blundering around against Iceland or sabotaging themselves against Argentina, Portugal or Germany or just losing their nerve and their shape and whatever else they clung to. That felt comprehensible in a different way 
you knew what was coming. Root and Branch Review at the FA, a prolonged bout of self-loathing. But how to explain this night to the children? This was very different. A well-grooved team playing with style and bravery against the reigning world champions. In other words, this England worked and this change has been in a thousand different ways. Those, it, was, it was great that it wasn't just same old story England because I don't think last night was the same old no, story. No, this is a team across all the major soccer writers today. Mm. This, this defeat hurts England for a very different reason than some of the ones in the past um, because this was not an embarrassment this was not a, 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 a self-combustion well he, you know they've missed a penalty but they've played extremely well they've looked really good they've looked like one of the best teams in the tournament most of the way through it in my opinion at least and uh, David Walsh is making similar points today but I had actually picked out that sentence from, from the, the Wallace thing this team will not be remembered like the others there's a sense now that England fe- are feeling that they've matured at last as an international force and are so close. What is it now? Semi-final, final, quarter-final that could have... Felt like the final last mm-hmm. night. Did feel like that. It, it did feel like that. Uh, felt like the final beforehand and it lived up to its billing. And that line by Wallace even, this was a World Cup quarter-final of grand scale. Yeah, some of the best players in the tournament were were playing last night I mean I, I didn't know much about Bellingham before this tournament you know we don't get to see him as much but he just looks like somebody who could be anything really For, you know Griezmann was just a revelation last night again he was outstanding yeah Giroud you know it's it, you know it was even like even Harry Maguire has kind of come out of this World Cup with his reputation somewhat restored absolutely and so I think the f- this is the feeling we're getting across the coverage today about this England team, which is why the next, so the the, the immediate response has been, you know, this is heartbreaking, this is really hard luck, we played really well and we just lost a game that we could have drawn, we could have won. And how quickly is it going to, I haven't looked online today, but how quickly is the narrative going to change to Southgate? Uh, and I, I was trying to remember which of the writers today says, like, he shouldn't leave, he shouldn't go, he should stay, you know, the, He's contracted to 24, I think, uh, is he? Yeah, the feeling was if they didn't get to the final this year, yeah. this time he'd go. But, yeah. but the, 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 whichever the writers it was, I'm sorry, I just can't remember yeah. now, I haven't got my hand on it, says, who else would you have at the moment? I mean, be careful what you wish yeah. for, to get rid of this guy. And even his substitutes have been criticised and taken off Saka, yeah. raised an eyebrow, sure. But he's also been accused of not being proactive enough. But to be fair... He brought on Mount, he brought on Sterling, he brought on Rashford. Admittedly, Grealish was only in response to the Stones injury. England were very much on top then, so I can understand him thinking, well, if I take off a centre-half and put on another attacking player, do we upset the balance totally? Didier Deschamps, Dan McDonald makes the point, he made one substitute. Mm. So, I mean, would Deschamps have been accused of all the same things if, if France had... Uh, ended up drawing that game and subsequently losing an extra time or penalties. He absolutely that, would have. That, that's a manager, Deschamps, who was criticised for holding this team, this French team, back before they actually broke through the glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was too conservative. He was wasting a, a generational talent of attacking players. It all sounds very familiar to England. And sometimes, as a manager, I, I'm guessing it's harder not to do something. I mean, the easier thing is to make a substitution. I was even looking at it last night. I thought Phil Foden was anonymous in yeah. the first half and then second half he was sensational just came into it now you know with all the talk about England would it have been easy for him to say look get Jack Grealish on there or whatever at that stage he didn't he let his team get into the game and you know what there's an aspect of self-preservation when managers make substitutes yeah you have to be yeah. seen to do something well look at me I made yeah. the substitutes whereas yeah. deep down you might think I need to give that player another chance yeah. to get into the game and on Deschamps I mean for him to lose Pogba and lose Kante and to have the smarts to realise that in Benzema. Griezmann, I have a perfect hybrid. Yeah. He can do both. Yeah. And to just put him in there and, and watch him flourish. Yeah. He didn't have any prep time, really, for Griezmann to get to grips with that position. But mm. it, I think that's the genius of a, a really good manager making well, things look it's, simple. It's the, light, the light touch. Do you know what I mean? It's not about you have to drop this guy. You have to change attacking shape. Go with three at the back or four at the back. Sometimes... You know, just that light touch that a manager can manager can bring to it, and we've seen it a few times in the World Cup with with, with managers. I mean, Santos doing what he had to do and dropping Ronaldo when he had to drop him. Yeah. Uh, 
Croatia the other night when he when he took off his midfield, including Modric in, in extra time. Yeah. You know, you're thinking Modric is a shoe in to take penalties. No, he's coming off. He, I need to. Yeah. I need to influence the game. I need to do make this change. He's 37. He's tired. And yes. he, there's been some a lot a lot of bravery from managers, you know. And if, and I think Southgate in the main has been brave in this tournament. Yeah. You know, the, bo- the bottom line for England though is it's another what if it's yeah. another painful blow and where do you go and Ollie Holt again says um, you know for those of us who measure our lives in England defeats the World Cups you can now add Albite to Leon, Turin, San Etienne, Shitsuoka, Gelsenkirchen, Blumfontein, Sao Paulo and Moscow mm. do you know it's a huge litany of where do we go from here and it, it is a huge question like does Southgate stay on you know how, how long how much more evolution is there in him and England together as a team? You know, it's um, it's going to be an interesting one for them in the years to come. Some exciting young players. Yeah, I mean, they're a phenomenal group at this stage. The conveyor belt shows no signs of letting up. I thought last year the analysis of the final against Italy rightly pointed fingers to Southgate. Mancini made a few substitutions, mm-hmm. took control of the game in midfield. Southgate didn't respond. Yeah. And that was a very fair criticism. But again, going back to the Sam Wallace piece, last night feels different. I thought England were... Just about the better team ah, wasn't were, much in it, were, but they, they were the better team, team for the yeah. majority of the game. Even when they equalised, they kicked on again, and then Giroud scored against the run of play, and they were unlucky. I thought the referee was genuinely a disgrace. I mean, he was a really average yeah. referee. Um, so all of these small moments add up, and it's an unsatisfactory analysis to say oh, they were they were just a bit unlucky. It can go this way sometimes, but sometimes you lose a match. Sometimes you do lose. Yeah. But you'd watching last night, you'd say, well, if they were to play ten times, you could easily see England winning five. Yeah. Like even at, at one nil, you didn't feel England were in trouble. You know, Fran- France started well, but you didn't feel England were in trouble. You, you always felt that England had a goal. Yeah. Know? The one criticism maybe is they didn't create anything clear cut from play for all that possession. France maybe created the better chances, but again, they were right in the game. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. There's a, I mean, not to use that Lenin quote, which is overused about decades where nothing happens (laughs) and then uh, weeks where decades happen. Mm. The World Cup does, in that amazingly exciting way, it does expedite career definitions of different players. So you have Neymar and Ronaldo in tears. You have Messi still alive. You have Mbappe who could do something historic akin Mm. to Pele. And these dynasties and these legacies are shaped over the course of a few days. It's what makes it all so exciting. I thought the the piece where I kind of sat back and said, okay, this guy's top, top, top is Barney Rone on Neymar. It's in The Observer. It's in... Uh, page five of the Sunday Independent as well. This is just someone who is probably peak of his powers. Yeah. I mean, Barney Rone, not Neymar. <laughs> um, so he's just talking about uh, Brazilian, like a parody of the game's joy, talent and freedom is the byline. He's reflecting on Neymar's career here and, and what he represents. And he starts by talking about the incessant ads that feature Neymar and Qatar. And he seems to be in the most annoying one where he pitches up with a kid uh, and, and does a few skills. And he seems to be everywhere as, as Neymar is. And he makes the point, Qatar made Neymar one of the richest athletes that has lived. Qatar has also made him into a kind of parable, a place where everyone in the end loses something of value. And he does note that Neymar had a fine game against Croatia, scored a fine extra time goal, uh, conceived and executed in one moment. But he goes on to look at the bigger legacy. Uh, There will be an urge to mock Neymar's tears, so many tears, and to rejoice at the hubris, also to drag in the politics, his support of the despotic and dangerous Bolsonaro. Why does Neymar annoy people, he asks? Because he's annoying. The on-pitch theatrics have been grim to watch, most notably the total tantrum ball stuff in 2018, the habit of always appealing to the referee, something Tim Vickery says uh, has links to growing up as a futsal kid, a discipline where fouls are constantly called and the ref is always on hand. Then there is the gaudy inanity of his public persona. Uh, The interminable Netflix documentary intended to showcase the real Neymar did exactly that, revealing in turgid, painful detail, the basic boredom and airlessness of being Neymar. A few years back, Barcelona spent €300,000 just to fly out his core hangers-on for his unveiling. More recently, uh, one one paper reported Neymar involved uh, in a threat to go on strike during a PSG tour of China. Imagine living in that place all the time, forever. 
This is perhaps the key point about the sporting life of Neymar Jr. Beyond the sparkle and the rage, an inescapable note of sadness. Nobody does this to themselves. Football made this thing, the Neymar identity. Football will do this, will take your talent and transform it into something grotesque. And he draws a parallel with Neymar and the World Cup and says, here is the spirit and the beauty that made you love this thing, but reproduced now as a corporate greed avatar, weaponized as propaganda and soft power. And uh, he also makes the point there is a toxic flowchart you can draw from Neymar's absurd 200 million pound move to PSG through the idiotic self-destruction of Barcelona, the smart uh, plays and hedges at some clubs, the, dis- the disintegration of others, <coughs> the Super League chaos, the riptide of pre-existing fear and greed that are still circulating. And for all the sense of stunted talent, of wings never fully spread, modern football is in so many ways his world, a place he captures more profoundly than any other individual. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's it, it is phenomenal. And I actually think you left out the best, the best oh, half means. sentence. So you mentioned the thing about Barcelona spending three hundred grand to fly out his, his core hangers on, um, and allegedly threatening to go on strike, blah blah blah, to force his way to China. And then this, this is the bit I just loved. A sentence so replete with toxins and bad things that just reading it feels like standing too close to football's exposed reactor core. Oh, eyes already starting to melt. Yeah. I mean, geez, that's just in- extraordinary writing. Yeah. It, and, and that's the thing with, with Barney Roney. I actually enjoyed his piece on England more. Like, that's all brilliant. <laughs> but I actually, when you were doing, you know, I think I, I liked it. But it's like saying I prefer Messi to Ronaldo. Sure. It's just... And he, he's writing a lot over there. He's not, uh, you know, a one-piece-a-week writer or anything. Barney is constantly doing it, and he's, he's full-time on the whistle. He's a guy who can sit back and do this, and, and uh, you know, even talking to the soccer lads, and I've seen it myself, you'd see him in the press centre at a tournament, and he's batting stuff out, and then you'd see it in The Guardian online 20 minutes later, and you're like, it's only 40 minutes since the final whistle, or whatever, you know, and you're just going... The green-eyed monster is out. You're looking. How does this guy do it? But it's it's extraordinary, and it sums up Neymar's career, and it sums up modern football, and it links them so brilliantly across however amount of words. What would that be, John? That was twelve hundred words. Twelve hundred words. I mean, is there any wasted word in any of that? Like, it's just extraordinary stuff. Um, knowing I was coming on the show today, yesterday I was thinking about Neymar, and because I knew he'd obviously come up, and. Uh, before I'd, I'd seen the Barney Roney piece come into us, and I was thinking, I don't have anything to say on Neymar. He's he's one he's he's passed me by. Neymar has passed me by. You know, I've worked in sport for for twenty years, and his career has passed me by. And then I read the Barney Roney piece, and uh, oh, well, then I'm okay. You know, it's it's okay to for yes. that to happen. And in the Sunday Times today, Jonathan Norcroft. It's not as good a piece, but it's on a similar theme. But he is a really good. He, he says greatness is about. Tr- he's making a similar point, not as well, but he's, it's it's still a good piece. He greatness. Was, he was noting that Neymar is equal Pele's goal yeah, scoring but record, that doesn't but he's mean, saying he's not Pele. Yeah, yeah. He's not Pele. Greatness is about transcending, about breaking out from the bubble of personal performance to do something greater with one's skill set. And greatness is not about stats. If it were, we would have to accept Oliver Giroud as better than Thierry Henry just because he broke Henry's France goal scoring record. All of that is why Neymar falls short in this observer view of the building of Brazil legend projected on him. He always seems to play principally for Neymar. Yeah, because initially I had jotted down that we should discuss Neymar and I read the Sunday Times first today. And then unfortunately after it uh, burned, <laughs> yeah. he said, well, we'll probably lead with uh, Rene's version. But it's a similar threat, yeah. this unfulfilled talent, yeah. this uh, embodiment of the ills of modern yeah. football. And uh, it's, it's that old... For all his undoubted talents, yeah, because Brian Rennie talks about <laughs> dot, dot, dot. how he had he, the best goal he's ever yeah. seen in yeah. the flesh yeah. was scored by Neymar for PSG. So like the, the talent is, is, is there. But even, even the way he he talks about that goal, that he, you know, um, you know, it was a, a goal against Dijon in Liga and the yeah. Farmers League, as, as as the tractors were called. And he said it felt like feasting on a hologram. Again, Jesus, <laughs> how does he do that? Like you know, where does that come from? Um, you Damn know, you, Rone. Exactly, like, you know, but on John's point there, like, he's more than 600 games into his professional career. And it yeah. just goes, you know, yeah. we, we talk a lot in modern football about how difficult it is for players to make it. And, and there was a piece, I think, was in The Guardian yesterday, tracking Kylian Mbappe's career. And he came through Clairefontaine, where they have um, kids in from the age of 13 to 15. And everything is done for them. It's, it's like England copied it in Burton and Trent, like, 
brick for brick and there was a line in the piece and it said two-thirds of the guys who go through there in their mid-teens don't even sign a professional contract. So, you know, that's what we th think about, like all these academies and kids are churned out and there's nothing but... It's not just, it doesn't just stop there for a player of that ability to make it all the way to the top and the hurdles they have to get through. Like Neymar is everything a footballer, uh, an epochal football, footballer should be. Yeah. And yet he, he didn't get there. And it's the brilliance of Barney Roney's pieces. It explains why football maybe held him back. And Did you guys ever see that Netflix documentary? No, no, no. And, it's, uh, and I guess that's the thing, like we're saying, how did Roney do this in 40 minutes? I mean, he took the time three mm. months ago or four months yeah. ago to sit through what is truly the worst documentary yeah, you yeah, ever see on yeah. Netflix. Uh, <laughs> but he does, that documentary, I'm surprised because it was obviously from the Neymar camp. That documentary does in a fairly upfront way acknowledge he's a terrible professional. Mm. And there was a period after COVID where he played very well for PSG. They got to the final of the Champions League in that COVID. He didn't get Champions injured. Because he was prone, and it was yeah. because during COVID. He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't go out and party. Mm. And he just hung out with some mates and played football every day and got very fit. <laughs> and so you're thinking, yeah. imagine that. <laughs> Would the yeah. penny not drop here yeah, for anyone? Yeah, yeah. So there is that with Neymar. And yet, akin to that point I was making about these career defining few days, I've never liked Neymar. I've always, I mean, Brian Rene has articulated what was mm. uh, was in my head in more muddled fashion for the last number of years. I did watch his goal against Croatia and I did think, OK, well, this could change his legacy. Yeah, well, and yeah, it, exactly. Because you know, that was an amazing Maze goal, amazing moment. Yeah. Yeah. And if yeah. he spearheaded Brazil to win a World Cup, then you would say, yeah. you know what, Neymar? He's there, he's yeah. there now. He's kind there of. now. Yeah. So it's amazing. Yeah, that's the standards you're held to, you know. The um, the Norcroft piece, uh, just for for us that are obsessed with media, finishes with a little bit of tittle tattle, like, yeah. which is a, a great story about an argument between Graeme Sunes and, and, and the late journalist uh, writer Hugh McIlvanny about who was better, Messi, which was Sunes's view, or Maradona, which was McIlvanny's. And Norcroft says, for more than an hour, the arg argument raged cyclonically, blowing away the prospect of any other conversation. And eventually, Sunis, exasperated, said, look, Hugh, I played against Maradona five times. I'm telling you, it's messy. Yeah. To which McIlvenny thundered in tones as deep as though a mountain were talking. I don't care who you played against, son. It's Diego. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, really good. So, um, well, that's some of the World Cup uh, thus far. Ronaldo tears are touched on in the Sunday Times. So again, he knows it's over. For Messi, it is still alive. And there are a couple of pieces on Messi which are great fun. Tommy Conlon is charting the fallout from the niggliest of games between Argentina and the Netherlands. And he has like a quote from Otamendi about the celebrations after the shootout. I celebrate in their face because one of the Netherlands players at every penalty kick we had was coming and saying things to one of our players. And it does seem like Latoro Martinez was surrounded by a couple of men in orange jerseys as he was heading to take his penalty. And then we have the Messi interview where it seems it was Veghorst who scored the amazing goal from that free kick. It feels like three weeks ago. It was one of the great <laughs> yeah. uh, goals just two days ago. And it seems that at that point, Messi in the interview says, what are you looking at, you fool? What are you looking at? Get out of here, fool. And Tommy says, there we were all along through his gilded, magnificent career thinking that the little genius wouldn't say boo to a goose. Uh, but he does make the point, And again, it ties in with this this wider um, issue for Neymar and for Ronaldo and for Mbappe and for Messi. Tommy says something about the Dutch got under his skin. Or maybe it's that the great mission of his career, the greatest of them all, is disturbing his serenity like never before, because this is his last chance in life to achieve it. The proximity of the prize the proximity to the end of his career has combined to exert an oceanic pressure on his emotional state of mind. His behaviour on Friday night was completely at odds with his normal demeanour. He is feeling it in the marrow of his bones. Yeah, I think that's probably... It, it's hard to believe that the Dutch got under his skin. Like, he's, he's 19 years playing, you know, where he's been kicked around every football pitch in Europe yeah. uh, and South America. It, it's hard to believe that it's anything other than this... Uh, there's a reference elsewhere I think it's John Carlin to, to, to the impact of Maradona's passing as well and that, that's kind of there's always been a question about his commitment to Argentina but that there's there's a change in him now and it, it is this passing of the torch as well isn't it you know these older the Ronaldo uh, Neymar Messi this is it this is their swan song this is their curtain call and he's the last one left now with the chance to, well Modric as well but he's a, on a, a different kind of player yeah um, there's something 
about Messi's demeanour. You know, he's not not necessarily in how he's playing. He's not particularly playing with aggression. He's playing quite within himself. Mm. But there's something in his demeanour that's different this time, isn't there, about than what we've seen in previous World Cups. I think so. It may just be his surroundings as well. I'm uh, just very coincidentally I'm reading Jonathan Wilson's book in Argentinian football at the moment and I'm actually on the chapter of 1966. Right. And Antonio Ratan in that famous quarterfinal in Wembley. And just having read all, you know, the previous decades and how Argentina changed from, you know, the beautiful football, the angels to the dirty faces, like it's it's Argentina. You know there's something I mean? reassuring about what they're kicking Holland around yeah, the pitch. The that's other that's night. what it's they do, like, like you do. know. And there, there's a there's a bite and a bark to Argentina. All the best teams. I mean, you look at the team that Maradona played with as well. You look at Argentina in 1990, that World Cup in Italy, and they were just dreadful, apart from a little bit of magic from uh, Maradona and Claudio Canigia. That's that's Argentina, and maybe this is the maybe this is the the mix of ingredients that they need to get them there. A the little bit of magic from from Messi and a lot of bite and a lot of aggro and. You know, I mean, it, what's really interesting as well after the game is their take on the referee. Everybody else says the referee was basically playing with a an Argentinian jersey. Yeah. And at least two Argentinian players came out. I think Messi was one said the referee was a disgrace. Yeah. He gave us nothing. So there's that siege mentality built into it as well. I can't warm to Argentina for all no. those reasons. Yeah. I've never liked them. And so many people listening go, why? Argent- yeah, We're all Argentina. Yeah, yeah. We love Argentina. Yeah. I can't warm to them. Give me Croatia and Modric mm. over Argentina any day of the week. Where are you guys on that? I think we've got very ambivalent about Messi too. I know, uh, yeah. Well, I've, I, I heard you, but I think... I'm uh, seeking myself going on about that. Yeah, but I think <laughs> I, I think that's a lot of us uh, who, I, who I would have liked to see, like who have enjoyed watching Messi do no, the things I'm, that he's done. But I think there's a... There's an ambivalence there towards him now because of what's happened and because of his connections with Saudi Arabia. And I have a strange connection to Argentina still. I mean, Brazil would have been the, the, the exotic team of the 80s when I was growing up and, and they were the, the ones you love. But there's something about the jersey, there's something about the history, there's something about the players that they've had. And they're like maybe there is a bit of attraction to that dark side of, of them as well. There's character to them. Sure. You know, good or bad, there's... Three-dimensional. You know, I mean, what, what tournament was it? Was it... 06 in Germany when they scored that brilliant team goal. Do you remember 45 passes or something as well? And yeah. you know, there's always that in Argentina. They're never dull, are they? There's always something about them, and there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. I noticed uh, almost a sense of rejoice at Brazil's demise. Yeah. Do we see them as akin to Neymar, a touch too showboaty and <laughs> a touch wasteful when it comes to the crunch? Or what? what is that about, do you think? Uh, yeah. In John Carlin's piece, he lived there for a while in the Sunday Times. He says he's really interesting language. Might speak a bit, a little to that about Argentina, society, about society as a culture. They have failed, and deep down they know it. Football is the one place where re- reality and their highfalutin sense of themselves meet. Only at football have they shone on the world stage. And he says they have. They're a highly educated population, and he he says that. Uh, the, the little they have achieved, he speaks about the little they have achieved as a nation despite a glut of natural resources and a highly educated population. That's interesting. And so that brings it into a different realm of this, that there's a cultural aspect underpinning Argentinian football, which which we're not as familiar with over here. We had Marcelo Mori Irao on the show at the start of the World Cup, and I was asking if uh, football is as central as ever in Argentinian oh. society. And she said, It's funny you say that because the, the evening news just had a Vox Pop. And people were asked, because the Argentinian economy is on the floor right now, and they were asked, Again. Would you, well, indeed, yeah. would you rather Argentina win the World Cup or that the economy recovers? And the general refrain was, well, look, you know, the economy <laughs> comes and goes, but the World Cup <laughs> is the World Cup. <laughs> New Zealand and the All Blacks there as well, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's funny, just as an aside, I, was, I watched that game in, um, in a pub. Uh, one of the few chances I've had to go out and watch a game during the World Cup. Yeah. And, and it's just in a pub near where I live in a very rural area, but it was quite, quite a lot of people in it. And uh, there was about two minutes. I'd noticed during the game, there's a lot of people in there, how few people were actually watching it. It's on in two TVs in the, in the part of the bar that I was in. And with about two minutes to go to in an extra time, like in Argentina, where, where the Hungary at that stage, they were really pressing, looking to, to kill this game off and not go to penalties. Yeah. Because so, it wasn't a brilliant game of football, but it was an absorbing game for lots of reasons. It had a lot of, a lot of stuff going on in it and a lot of backstories and a lot of uh, niggle in it. 
And I just, with two minutes to go, I just said to my friend that I was with, I just did a head count in the bar. So there was 38 people at that moment in the, in the part of the bar that I was in, with two tallies either side of us. And apart from me and my friend, only two others were watching the game. Mm. And I, I th- you know, we've heard a lot of talk about this World Cup and how it's gripped the imagination and stuff. And sometimes we, we forget that it's not of interest to a lot of people sure. still. Sure. Uh, I wouldn't dream of going to a pub to watch a match. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's the second one I've seen. It's the England, no, the Spain-Germany game was the other one I watched. Okay. It's, it's impossible to watch modern football in a bar anyway. Like it's, lost, it's lost its kind of helter-skelter nature. Do you know what I mean? It's not a kind of a, oh, oh kind of event anymore. You have to concentrate on the football. Yeah. You but have to let the rhythms of it get in you on you. Could, could you imagine yeah. yourself sitting in a bar with two big TVs and Argentina and Holland are playing in the quarterfinal of the World Cup and there's two minutes to go to extra time and you're not even look, you're not even lifting your head to... People must be having interesting conversations. And as that. many points you've had at that stage well, as that's well. A big yeah. part Let's yeah. be honest. I find if I go to a bar, whoever I'm sitting beside, I feel a certain politeness required yeah. to make conversation yeah. and that, that, that change, when you get older you come out having you come out <laughs> having that scene again. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the old Seinfeld thing about getting to your 60s is your, you know your best decade because yeah. you don't care what people think well maybe so so uh, look that's the World Cup there's loads of great stuff I think uh, it's all really found its rhythm and it's, it's uh, I, I sort of had made the point even on Twitter it's killing me that FIFA for all the corruption and for all the awfulness yeah. and Qatar for the mistreatment of people and all the corruption and all the awfulness they have been graced with I think what is an am- it's been an amazing World Cup we were just saying that just saying that outside and to be fair to Oliver Holt he just has a little in his column just a little sign off at the end about how brilliant this World Cup is yeah. Every, he's, I went into this place and I met this guy from Jordan a doctor and he ended up paying for my sandwich for me and the matches have been brilliant the football's been great the organisation of it has been brilliant and he, but he signs off. So even though there is much beauty, the experience of being here has not changed my mind. The World Cup should not be played here. The fact that it is is a betrayal of much that FIFA claims to stand for. Yeah. And I heard you saying last week that in the first week of the coverage of the World Cup, it was very clear that there was an uncertainty in, in among journalists and editors about how to cover it, you know, in print and, and broadcast, yeah. and even among the teams themselves and the managers and the associations and the players about how they should be. Yeah. Then that kind of all died down after the first week, and then it became about the football. And that's even that, more the case. Now. That's as it should be in some ways. Yeah, but, sure. But, but nobody has lost sight, I think, of of the backdrop to this. But at the end, ultimately, and as we were saying outside, it's a, it works. Yeah. It's, it, FIFA are going to get away with it. Qatar are going to get away with it. Yeah. Just like the Grand Prix, just like the Olympics, just like yeah, Russia, just like Newcastle, just like Man City. We we park all that. We know that it's there, but we still get absorbed by the actual. It'll be interesting to see how, how the media wraps it up. Yeah, you know, when you think of the BBC's intro, they just said to hell with the, the opening ceremony. We're going to talk about this for an hour. How do you wrap that up at the end of it? Mm. As a newspaper, as a radio station, as a TV station. Well, it will be much easier for them to make some serious points now that England haven't just won it. True. Yeah. It might be harder in the euphoria for the BBC mm. to yeah. say, well, listen, before you enjoy this too much, yeah, just yeah. to remind you, this yeah. is all a disgrace. So certainly the door's more easily open to them now if they care to but do it. But media has thought very carefully about this and about how to pr- present it. And has, in the main, has done a pretty good job yeah. between walking that line between the so, football and the politics. I have to say, I, I mean... I appreciate that sometimes the standards are higher in the Champions League, but international football is just mm. the best football by a distance because we watch these players all the time play for entities they don't care about, have no links to, and you can see the difference in their demeanour when they're at a World Cup and mm. what it means to them to do it for their country at a World Cup or a major tournament. Yeah. It's so much more visceral and real. And what about a Winter World Cup? That's, Listen, that's it, got to be part it, of it. It hasn't the been fresher. The freshness, yeah, yeah. yeah. As a viewing experience, I have to say, I haven't hated coming home on a dark evening and yeah. a sun lamp of sorts to <laughs> gaze at for a few hours. Yeah. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Joe Brawley. Interesting piece this. New values can never trump loyalty. Uh, bonds forged on the field should not be broken to further a career 
So in effect here, he's criticising Henry Shefflin. Uh, he starts, though, by remembering Fionton McGarvey, who is, uh, I wasn't aware of his story, terrible, died in January at just 18. Uh, would have been number 10 for our St. Bridget's under 20 side this year, says Joe Brawley. Uh, the boys played the championship in his honour and he writes uh, very vividly, movingly about the players playing for their late friend and going to visit the grave after various matches and uh, talks about loyalty generally in the GAA and gives another example of uh, friends turning out for a friend who lost uh, a partner uh, to put up a marquee for them at the funeral. And he says, loyalty, an automatic response to support our own come hell or high water. This is something, he says, Brian Cody understands and something that his superstar, Henry Shefflin, may have forgotten. Their encounters this year were extraordinarily powerful, an epic collision of old ideals and the new flexible ones. Cody could not comprehend how Shefflin could plot against his old teammates, his county, his people, his mentor. For what? You could see it on Brian's face. For him, it was a terrible betrayal. Henry was a traitor and there could be no justification for this treachery. Henry, for his part, was shocked and perhaps then shamefaced. It wasn't supposed to feel like this. Cody was supposed to play the game, smile, shake hands, pat him on the back and suck it up. For his part, Shefflin would behave like the great Liverpool striker who transfers to Manchester United, scores the winning goal against his old club. Uh, Do the professional thing, walk back to the centre circle without celebrating. You can dress it up whatever way you want, but at the deep heart's core, it was disloyal of Shefflin and it was left to Cody to call it out. I greatly admire and like Henry Shefflin. He's a fantastic fellow. I understand why he took the Galway job and wish him well in everything he does. He merely reflects the new values of the GEA. He says, I am uneasy when I see Shane Walsh being carried shoulder high into the Kilmacud Croaks clubhouse after a Dublin County final. I think about the man who lost his place to the Galway superstar. I wonder if Shane would be in the backyard of a club member's home at 7am on a Saturday morning erecting a marquee. And he uh, basically says, I have come to realise the game is about loyalty. Life is about loyalty. Nothing else. Discuss. Yeah, we had a heated discussion already outside about it. I find it jaw-dropping, to be quite honest. I mean, the, the line that jumps out at me is the new values of the GAA. What's new about what Henry Shefflin is doing? Like, I mean, I just, off the top of my head, I wrote down a list of managers who have gone to different counties. Mickey Moran, who everybody agrees. Oh, Mickey Moran, I mean, this guy turns up everywhere, a club, county, everything. What a guy. Brilliant. He's had great success. True Gale, all the rest of it. John O'Mahony, Mick O'Dwyer, Paddy O'Shea, Anthony Daly, Michael Bond... Eugene McGee, uh, Eamon Cregan, 94, manages awfully against his native Limerick. Funny, the example I thought of, because Joe was writing about him not so long ago, was Brian Mullins at Derry. Yeah. Like a great bond yeah. there. And, and it was talked about as like that great aspect of GA and people coming together. And well, I guess Brian Mullins was living in Derry at the time, I Still. suppose, was the thing. I mean, yeah. if, if Henry Shefflin moved to Galway, would that the be other, okay? Yeah, I think it, I, I, I'm... Um, I'm somewhere halfway between this because, you know, it's 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 a harsh criticism of Shefflin. There's no doubt about that, and he is not by any means the only uh, manager who's not involved. You know, who's who's gone elsewhere. I mean, today we have Malachy O'Rourke mm. with Glenn, and we were just trying to remember how many teams he's managed. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'd certainly in double figures, isn't it, between oh. county and club? Yeah, so. I find myself with the, with with the GA at the moment, and and by new values, I don't necessarily think he means uh, of of this yeah. era. I think it's it's a more general t- type of. There, there's a change in, uh, and I've heard discussions in here a lot about it. There's a change in the GA, and I don't like it. And the, the Shane Walsh one for me was something I was very uneasy about, uh, and I, I, I've heard it discussed and, and read stuff about it. But personally speaking, as somebody. Who, who always was uh, considered himself, you know, from a GA background. The idea of, and I'm not talking about Shefflin because Shefflin has only ever managed two teams, his home club and Galway, so yeah. far as I know. So I'm not referring to him here, but I'm talking about the idea of the nomadic manager sure. versus the idea of a manager going to some place and bringing a wealth of experience and a wealth of knowledge at club level. For, for the love of the game say as take facing him as Colm O'Rourke who, who's managed he's from screen originally but has lived most of his life in another part of Mead and has managed that team to county final success having played for screen in a county final that I can sort of 
in that kind of hazy moral values of the GM and understand. But the Walsh one was one that for me, I just couldn't fathom it. Uh, and I, I don't know if you remember the one a few years back, um, the guy going from Cavan to Johnny Johnson. Another example of what I would see as being not quite what the GA's ethos is. Mm-hmm. The Shefflin Cody thing, we've seen a load of different interpretations about what was at the back of it. Um, and it's hard to know without hearing from Cody himself. I always thought that there was an element of that in it that he had felt that that um, Shefflin had betrayed Kilkenny because Kilkenny hurling being that, you know, the, the most important thing in Kilkenny. I don't so, know. So why was Cody all smiles with Eddie Brennan as leash manager? Yeah, that's a, that's a thing because they're not a threat because he sees... So there's a treachery then if Eddie Brennan turns Leash into a threat? Well, you're getting into a different area then. I think you're getting into that sort of hurling superiority type thing where there's the, there's the few, there's the eight counties that matter and then there's the ones that don't and it's okay for somebody from Kilkenny or Tipperary to go and manage... You must send Lanford me this memo with all the unwritten rules in <laughs> GA because yeah. this is a hell of a grey area. I know, it's a hugely grey area and I'm not... Kind of dissonance going on here. I, I'm... I'm coming from a backdrop of, you know, having grown up in a house where I was um, the county secretary's son for 15 years. And I was very, from a very young age, indoctrinated into the grey areas of the GA and it's kind of morality. Like and cartel venue to me, to be honest you with you. Like, you can't say that Co- that was Cody's thinking. We don't know what Cody's no, thinking. No, I, d- I, I don't. I, I'm very clear. And I don't yeah. know what his thinking was. I, th- I think Joe makes a strong case that that might be what it was. But, you know, I'm not I'm not getting away from the fact that it's a harsh criticism of Shefflin in that, you know, this is now part of what the GAs, managers move from clubs, counties, yeah. on a regular basis. I think it's very unfair to, to single out Henry Shefflin. How, how, what, well, what he hasn't singled out Shefflin. Well, he's, he's, t- he's also talked about Shane Walsh. Why, wh- OK, both of them. Why is it so disloyal of Henry Shefflin, what he did? Why is that disloyal? Why is it disloyal of Henry Shefflin and why can I turn around and say Mickey Moore and Anthony Daly and all these guys, why isn't anybody pointing the finger at them? What did they do wrong? No, they didn't do anything wrong. And a totally secondary argument is the fact that what are Kilkenny meant to do as a county? Are they meant to leave Brian Cody there untouchable forever, which you might argue is entitled to? Henry Shefflin managing Galway is arguably good for Kilkenny. He's cutting his teeth at inter-county hurling. And when the day does come that Henry Sheff- or that Brian Cody's gone, Henry Shefflin has the experience of yeah, how many years. Yeah, if you're taking sporting pathways, the obvious pathway for him was blocked. Yeah, was absolutely. And, and, and for him to you know, what's, what's, I mean, one part of the GA or sport in general is we should be bettering ourselves. You know, we should be looking to better ourselves. It's not just managers. You've got S&C people, you've got physios, everybody involved in county teams. It's like you say, Joe, where's, where's the, the boundary? Here you shall not cross. That's the Rubicon. You are not allowed there. You can go there. We can't do that. There's nothing new in this. There's no new values in it. I get the central point about your, 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 your club is your life and your county is your life. But we've seen it from time immemorial. I mean, you go back into the, the annals of history and Dublin were winning hurling titles and football titles with, with culties up from, from, from the country, left, right and centre. It's always been like that. You know, society moves. You look at the picture that you've used with Joe Brawley's piece today. He's hugging his son who was playing for St. Bridges in Belfast. Joe Brawley's a done given man from Derry. Do you know what I mean? Life yeah. changes. Yeah. We all... Belfast, absolutely, but, but that's the way it is. Yeah. I mean, Shane Walsh is living in... in in Dublin. Now, there's all these arguments about is he in college or whatever. He's there. He's entitled to be there. I mean, the GA have gone through the rule book to check all these things. He's entitled to be there. It's decided he's there, so he's perfectly entitled. And you go back to Kilmacud when they won All-Irelands before as well. They had outside players there before. Didn't they have Brian Kavanagh from Longford as yeah, well, yeah. who was living in, and, and teaching in Dublin? So uh, another name that came to mind for me was Mick Lillis with the uh, Port Leash team that won the All-Ireland in 83. Mick Lillis is a Clare man and he moved up to Port Leash and he was on a he was a key key role for and us look, in the Dub- Dublin club football has always been underpinned by people absolutely. who moved to the city except, absolutely. except when it's I just, I just back in the I, 60s I, and 70s they, a lot yeah. of them went back and played I just, don't, I, I, I just don't think it's day. fair to be pointing out one player and one manager when we've got oceans of examples of people moving around for various reasons some we can point out and say well 
but the vast majority of it is that's the way it is and that's life and they're entitled to do it and I don't see why Henry Shefflin should be picked out in uh, a, a piece like this and said you know it was left to Cody to call it out I just don't agree with it at all The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball On a separate but linked point it's quite interesting this um, uh, like this this visceral uh, loyalty required for your for your club and for your county that's very much in the GA and this isn't so much connected with this piece but it's just a, we've, we've talked about um, almost the violence inherent in GA over the last number of uh, months in particular I think almost there's two sides of the same coin here there is a toxic aspect to this do it for your club, do it for your county uh, aspect. And I think that's why GA often boils over into violence. It's like, there's a degree of like, we hate the lads two towns over. Do you know what I mean? And uh, like above all else, we're a brotherhood and we're doing it for each other. And if they, you know, lay a finger on one of our lads, you let them have it. And again, I'm not sure it's the best perspective for, or the best ethos to have sometimes. I think it's a little bit reductive in the same way that, you know, you can't talk about Henry Shefflin's loyalty uh, just in terms of his GA, you know, son, brother, husband, father, colleague, you name it. You know what I mean? It's it's a very, um, it's lacking in perspective. Like this, this upset me. Mm. Oh, geez, shame. Geez, shame. You can forget about him as a man almost, Shane Walsh. <laughs> you know, like that kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, there is something about that culture in GA that I don't like that, oh, there's your man. He moved up to Dublin and he left the club. What? Mm. Yeah, and I don't. I don't think that's healthy, and I think it's outdated. And for me, it's, 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 it's the old Ireland that's curtain twitching and you know, yeah, and small minded as well. And I, don't, I don't think it serves the GEA to encourage that atmosphere. I think the atmosphere should be one like the statement that was released by Shane Walsh's club. Mm. I didn't like either. Yeah, and I understand. Like I understand where Joe Brady is coming here from here. I think like mm. as you said, it's it's that weird grey area. But shouldn't it be a more um, a place where we wish each other well a bit more as opposed to this sense of, well, we're us and you're you and it's going to stay that way. Well, it's it's the fact that the GA's great strength is in what you're saying, it's great weakness. I mean, the pride in the parish, the pride in the club. That's and always that been the case. And that, that's GA's brilliant. strengths and weaknesses are so interlinked. Wrapped up yeah. in the same thing. Yeah. 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 I, 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 yeah the, the, the violence piece is, is even, it goes, it's even deeper. I mean, it goes right back into, um, I mean, it, it's hard to, you know, you could spend an hour discussing that on its own. The GA at at local level is the, is the very heart of the Irish person. Not, I'm not saying not everybody obviously is interested in GA, and a lot, lot of people quite despise it for lots of reasons. But essentially, it is Irishness at its core, with all the conflicts that come with being an Irish person and all that sort of hangover from post-colonialism and all the stuff that we've been through and all the stuff that's part of our DNA that we don't even know ourselves yes. has, that has formed us and the GA is mixed up in all, the, in all that in a, kind of, in a way that's really hard to even begin to explain in, it, like in terms of the word loyalty is, is you know that's that's not my word that's Joe's word it, it, it's loaded as well and but to give a kind of a personal example, um, so I'm from Langford originally, so my club when I was young was Langford Slashers. And um, this year actually marks the turning point where I'm I'm longer out of Langford than I was in it. So, so I'm, I left in my early 20s, so I'm in my late 40s now, so I, I'm 25 years gone out of Langford. Langford Slashers won the All-Ireland Intermediate Ladies club final yesterday yesterday afternoon in Croke Park and I haven't been involved with Langford Slashes for three decades nearly mm. and yet uh, I was touched by that in a way that I didn't think I would be and I was it was all in the background at work but work being work I couldn't watch it all but I was vaguely aware of it and my 13 year old daughter who's from Mead uh, went into it to watch it and you know you just go through it I was going through the, the panel today my sister-in-law had two girls on the panel mm. my first cousin had a girl one of Langford's greatest ever footballers had a girl a fellow who I used to know who was a really good Langford footballer his son was one of the managers mm. these are all the kind of 
relationships that form around the club that are the positive, healthy t- type things, you know. And when I was in Langford, there was no girls football in Langford slashers. Uh, it was no, hardly any yeah. girls football in Langford. So these are all the kind of the positive side of things. And then what you're saying about the violence on the other side, that's the other side of that coin that it's... It's uh, it, yeah, it, and, uh, Tommy Connell had a great piece about this a few months yeah. back where he said it's the, uh, you know it is this, the same coin but I would love there and we, I'm, I'm we not have, do you remember the Mayo guy in Supermax uh, do you remember that story uh, the guy who, who ran on the field, ran on yeah, the, field. The, the Limerick game yeah the Limerick uh, game and still haven't tackled him and, and then he an hour later he's in McDonald's or Supermax on a roundabout it's just on the edge mm. of Limerick and when he walks in there he gets a standing ovation yeah 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 there is that aspect mm. but look I'm not in Brian Cody's head I don't know what his motivation was it may well have and been and we're not in Shefflin's head either no we you're not no, we don't know like I, I, I didn't think he was shamefaced. I thought he was a bit no. confused actually yeah. I, I don't think sh- I, I didn't think Shefflin looked ashamed mm. he, whatever he, he looked disappointed it, and a bit he looked surprised. a bit shocked I mean, shocked yeah I would have said yeah but so I'm not in Cody's head, but say it is about loyalty. Say Cody thinks, oh, you, you're going against our people. And again, I don't know what was in his head. Maybe he's just bullying because he just lost the match in dramatic yeah. circumstances. But shouldn't the values of the GAA be there? Not you left us, you're against us. Shouldn't it be this is our pastime? This is this is our, 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 our place to come together. You've just lost your brother. I'm you, you're me. Let's hug each other. Shouldn't that be that moment? All that we've been through together. Shouldn't yeah, that I be think it? In, in an sounds like a nice world, sitcom. I, I think it, yeah, it sound, that sounds very <laughs> twee. Uh, Sorry, it, it, in, it shouldn't in, be in twee. The seconds in after a, after yeah. a sporting contest, I think that's a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, I don't, uh, well, uh, it certainly shouldn't be that look. And are the, are the values of the GA, you know, when you touch on it there, are the values of the GA, all these things now, this elite sport, this huge amount of money, huge amount of time, you know, so when you lose a game, it's not just a game you've lost. You've spent X amount of money on preparing a team. You've, you know, stopped the club championship for three months. Or it's all these things that the GA is wrestling with at the moment. I think, uh, mm. which is separate to what what Joel's saying here. But I'm just saying, sure, the the, the idea that you know you'd you'd go up and clap them on the back and say, oh God, that was a close one, well done. You, I mean, I don't know. I've I've, I've managed underage teams and. <laughs> Being on the sideline, it's, and you, you know you lose a game. It's very hard to go up and. and Brand, but then let's let's no, you don't. By the same point, let's not then pitch it as some very rational phil- philosophical difference with yeah. Shefflin either. I think he was just bull and he lost the match. You know, and again, yeah. we don't know. It's yeah. extraordinary that twenty years on from Saipan and and that you know um, picture of Mick and uh, Roy Keane after the Holland game, yeah. where it's like that kind of Leonardo da Vinci painting. Uh, that aside, I think I've never seen as much comment on a handshake on a handshake or one photo. Mm. It's extraordinary, and that's really what you know. A and lot of what we're talking about is conjecture over what two men were thinking yeah. at one split moment in time. And yeah. if you ask them, they mightn't even know themselves. Yeah, like you say, it's the end of a game. There's so much happening. If you were to ask Brian Cody to sit down over a coffee now, and Brian Cody opened up to you, which he never would, what would he think? God, I can't remember what I was thinking. Yes, and not to talk about like a football tackle here but slow motion does make these things <laughs> yeah, worse exactly. and, if, and if you think back to when yeah. it happened there was an awful lot of airtime and column yeah, yeah, the whole context to amateur it, yeah, psychology yeah. on this so, oh for sure so listen I don't know what's going on this is, this is the latest instalment and I have to say so it's in, you know you disagree with it quite strongly mm. um, at the same time in fairness it's got every, it's got us talking. It's interesting. Like yeah. you might as well you might as well put something in the paper that is strong opinion yeah. and gets people talking. Yeah. That's that's the point of. Well, job, you, know, you know, but the uh, pieces should at the, at the uh, you know no more than than than, than radio or TV. If, if, if colonists should should be interesting. They should be entertaining, not deliberately provocative, but mm. they should certainly force you to um, challenge them or yourself. Yeah, because. Look, I, 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 even you'd concede, Brendan, you wouldn't like it to become too commonplace either. There is something nice about oh, locality yeah. and, and yeah. players managing their own county. Yeah. You it's don't want to lose that either. It's overplayed too. I mean, you, you, you've said that it is overplayed, this this whole thing. And it's because we're in this vacuum of the split season um, where, mm. whereby it... Are you and your GA writers having long meetings on a Wednesday saying, well, I don't even know what to write about either? No, no, okay. <laughs> no. There, there's um, no, you know, 
the, the, the beauty of having one paper a week is, is that enough. you know you can really hone in on things. It's it's the it's the likes of Brendan who who are on the day six day slog. You know, that, that, that Listen, the, the, the O'Brien response to Brawley is the Monday column I'll be uh, looking forward to now. <laughs> um, just to finish up on GAA. Dave Clifford on the back page. I'm not sure which of you picked this out, but one of you wanted to touch mm, on yeah, this. this I, I mentioned this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Did, yeah. This is really just the latest, I suppose, in a line of Clifford is doing something so extraordinary and it's migrated to club level now. And so Eamon Sweeney says that David Clifford's appearance in today's Munster Club Junior Football Final epitomises what is best about the GEA. This unique quality makes it worth any amount of World Cups. And... Uh, he says there will be perhaps a few thousand in Mallow today when he lines out for Fossa against Kilmurray, yet the game will be just as important in Clifford's eyes. What makes the GA unique is the abiding link between the top and the bottom levels. That is its superpower. Why did you pick this out, John? Well, this um, kind of ties into our last uh, conversation as well. But David Clifford moving to Croaks would be the end <laughs> for... Oh, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be. Yeah. Stop the presses, man. To Dr. Croaks or Kilmacud Croaks, either or. Uh, the reason I picked this out, and uh, like Eamon's kind of done the piece on the back page, that's fine, kind of a tribute to, to Clifford. Yeah. In the Sunday World, sort of Sean McGoldrick has done the kind of the nuts and bolts of it, uh, which, which is uh, kind of puts Clifford's year. Uh, it's it's been a year like mm. no other really in the history. I th- not maybe that's a bit of a big statement, but few players can have had a year what he's. Yes. So some three hundred and thirty nine days after his first first match in twenty twenty two, David Clifford brings the curtain down on a remarkable season in Mallow. This for the junior final day against Fulham. It will be his thirty second competitive match this year in his seventh different competition. The only one that he failed to win was <coughs> this Sigerson, wasn't it? Yeah, Limerick. yeah. He's okay. So if if he wins today, he he'll have, it'll be his eighth, it'll be his seventh comp- competition win out of eight competitions that he's played in this year. Mm. He has only failed to score twice from play in two of the thirty-one games that he has played so far this year across club, county, and college. I mean, and he's still only twenty-four. I mean, this guy is. I just love watching him play. Even yeah. I actually thought that Shane Walsh was shaded it in the other and final mm-hmm. in terms of the Possibly, contribution. Yeah. But in terms of watching <coughs> somebody operating in their own space-time continuum at a different orbit to everybody else, Walsh had his day of days yeah. in the other and final. Clifford has had so many days of days, and to watch, he's different. He looks different. He kicks the ball differently. He solos it differently. He bounces it differently. He's just, I, I, I'm just about old enough uh, to remember um, sitting in in the dugout when I was a kid at Langford matches and watching Matt Connor up close, and it reminds me of that seeing somebody who's so palpably different from yeah. everybody else and who does things differently. So the, the idea of putting putting this on the back page today wasn't really to add to the kind of Clifford pieces that have been written all year. It was just to acknowledge the fact that today is the last game that he will play in what has been an extraordinary year by any stretch of the imagination I, for any athlete. <coughs> I saw him in one of his first games this season. It was in McGrath Cup. No, Sigerson. Sigerson. I think it was his second or third game. They played QUB, Queen's University, Belfast and Abbottstown. Uh, lovely setting and everything. He scored 2-4 that night and he scored two of the best scores I've ever seen in the flesh. And I remember saying at the time, it was 2nd of February, I looked it up there earlier, and I remember saying to people all that week, I'm not going to see a better individual performance all year. Now, he's given a few of them since, but I don't think it's been topped. He's, he, he, he scored one goal where, you know, a picture of Maradona in 86 against Belgium where all the Belgian defenders in front of him, it felt like that. There was all these defenders between him and the goal. There was an easy point on, and you were thinking, tip it over the bar, and he hammered it into the top corner. I still don't know how he did it. And a point he scored, he got the ball on the 45, more or less, and he was running laterally across the pitch towards the main stand. And it was like a kind of a Keystone Cops scene of t- three or four defenders trying to grab him by the coattails. And he was actually gone by the posts, if you know. So he was closer to the sideline than the centre of the pitch. And on the run, without breaking stride, he kicked the ball over his shoulder from that distance, on the run at that angle, over the bar. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember just thinking, oh my God. And like it, it brings up that again, the Declan Lynch thing about, you know, there's never a game of soccer you shouldn't watch any time David Clifford is playing. And actually for something like this for Fossett today, the proximity you'll get to him as opposed to being even up in the, the top tier of Croke Park. Yeah. And that was the beauty of it that night. You were right up against it. Yeah. And he was right there in front of you. And like, same as John, 20 years doing this, you don't get starstruck often. Mm. But you come away from that, it was a random Wednesday night and driving back to Kildare just thinking, what have I just seen? And, and, and that's why a piece like that, you know, we can't ask, well, what are you telling me new? Sometimes it's nice just to sit back to and reflect go, wow, yeah. wow. You know, what, what a guy. He's just, he really is incredible. In 20 years, he's definitely the best I've seen anyway. Five fifty-five in six games in the Kerry Club Championship, so eleven points per game average. I don't remember anyone being ordained by so many, mm. as even as a minor, the best we may have ever seen so yeah. early, yeah. by real sober senior judges who wouldn't rush to those kind yeah. of um, uh, compliments. You know, Peter Canavan, all these guys saying this this guy could be the best we've ever seen. But it's great, it's great to see like guys like that. I, I still remember the first time I saw Graham uh, or the Gooch play for for Kerry. Yeah, it was a Division Two final against Leash in the Gaelic grounds, and it was spilling rain. It was rotten, dirty, horrible day. And I think within I, I'll stand open to correction this. Within a couple of minutes, he'd skin the Leash cornerback. And he, score he's the last prodigy I remember really yeah. feeling this way about. But I, I remember I remember just thinking of it that time. You'd heard about yeah Cooper and. Um, but he did that and I remember thinking, oh my God, what have we got here? And you know, that's extraordinary to still see that in the flesh. It's like a Messi or it's like a Ronaldo, just to, for that to kind of appear in your face on a dirty day in Limerick in the middle of April or whatever, it's just extraordinary. Mm. Fellas, we are out of time. Is there any uh, piece you want to direct people towards that you'd hope to mention or didn't get a chance to, or have we generally got that? I was going to make one quick point. Please without, do. Uh, without, um, without referring to anything in specifics, but the... The, the All Ireland Senior Ladies Club final was on yesterday in Croke Park, and uh, gotta say that coverage is really poor today. And there are a few pieces. Uh, there's one in the in the the Mail and Sunday by Shane McGrath with Sue Carty mm-hmm. uh, about the women's rugby report during the week, and a couple of other mentions through the papers about you know how things have improved in terms of women's sport over the last five years. And I just would find it hard to believe that. If there was an All Ireland senior football or hurling club final on a Saturday, that there wouldn't be a lot of coverage across the papers. Uh, but the, with the ladies final yesterday, which the Galway team won, Kilkerran Clamburn, there was um, the coverage is, is very poor today. I have to say. Okay, uh, fair point. Thank you both for coming in, John Green, <laughs> Sunday Independent Sports Editor, Brendan O'Brien from the Irish Examiner. That was the Sunday papers. Back with you next week. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.